everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the medical films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about the 1973 Michael Goh starring Horror Hospital. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Yeah, welcome to the first entry in our new themed episodes. Today, we're focused on nurses. And right off the bat, we have already failed you because this movie does not have nurses. It has a nurse, singular, just one, just one fucking nurse. I think that's fair. Let's, I... let's apologize to our listening audience. We promised a film about nurses and there's just one. No, if you're going to give me these idiosyncratic niche themes, then I have to have a little flexibility I can make things singular or plural. Listen, I'm I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. I feel like I am just as much responsible for not screening this film in advance to be able to warn everyone that there's only one nurse in this film. Well, I wasn't even sure if she counted as a nurse. Like it she's never called nurse, but that's her function. That that is her function. I mean, she she assists with surgeries. If that's not a nurse, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, you can find 1973's Horror Hospital on Tubi.tv and sometimes YouTube. Yeah, I'm thankful to have a VHS release of this. It came out on Gorgon Video MPI. Um, you want to go ahead and read you the back of the box? Sure. All right, it says, Welcome to Brittle House Manor, a, quote, health resort where young people are cured of all their hangups in one stroke. One stroke, that is, of Doc Storm's scalpel. You see, Doc Storm, a crippled, demented genius in a wheelchair, has a laboratory where he performs hideous and graphic brain surgery on his young patients, making them cooperative, brainless zombies. With the help of Frederick the Dwarf, the Bike Boys, and Doc Storm's infamous decapitating limousine, the new patients are guaranteed all the rest they will ever need. This was directed by a guy named Anthony Balk, who I have not seen any of his other films. Um, he directed eight films. So not like a prolific career. Um, he did not do any other horror films, I don't think. So this was his sole foray into horror. Did it feel like a horror film to you? No, not particularly. I think it feels like a like a 60s, 70s gothic horror film. Like if he, it has a similar feel to the later Hammer films. That's kind of what it reminds me of. Yeah, you know what? This is kind of like a Hammer film, but Hammer films nowadays are so tame compared to what has since followed that it's hard to think of them as horror exactly. It's more like gothic drama. Well, and they're very theatrical. And I think Michael Goh, who was in some, I don't know if it's Goh or Gal, but I say Goh, um, He's probably most famous for playing Alfred in Tim Burton's Batman movies. Uh, but he's been in, I mean, scores and scores of things. He's a hugely prolific actor, and he plays our villain here, Dr. Storm. He has that theatrical quality, and I think he originally was a theater actor. Like, I, I suffice it to say, I, I think he makes this movie work. 
like any other actor in that part, aside from maybe like the hammer greats like Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing or Vincent Price would have been a disaster in that role. Did you really enjoy his performance or was he just like more wallpaper? He was all right, but, you know, comparatively speaking to the rest of the cast, he wasn't in the movie that much. Like, you see him a lot in, like, the last quarter of the film. But before that, he's just in a couple scenes dropping one-liners. Yeah. Maybe he just has an outsized presence in my memory. But our main characters are Jason and Judy, played by Robin Asquith and Vanessa Shaw, neither of whom was in uh, many other movies. What did you think of them as our main characters? I spent the entire movie trying to figure out if this guy was supposed to be written to be likable, like even for the time. I think he I like him. I do. I like these characters actually a lot. He reminds me, and, and it's uh, this is ironic because I hate this book. He reminds me of like Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye. Damn, what did what did Caulfield do to you? I I just I just dislike that book. <laughs> I know everyone loves it. I don't get it. I, I can't I can't identify or sympathize with that character. And it, although I think he's similar to our Jason character here, I find Jason much more likable. We're probably gonna play audio clips of this guy later on, but it just kind of floored me how absolutely direct he was with his um god i guess with the with judy very close very early in the film yeah we'll get to that i think i know the scene you're talking about but i'll just say now that at first i couldn't decide if he was being a dick or if he was one of those guys that was always trying to be funny and it just didn't always work like i didn't know what was going on with him but as the movie went on I did get the sense that he's just a really direct upfront person. Like he's kind of like no bullshit and doesn't accept any bullshit from the world around him either. And I kind of like that. I think he's cool. The, uh, the romantic partnership between uh, Jason and Judy, I think is, is pretty forced. And and like most other situations, this just would not have flown at all. I liked it. I thought that they went together like from the very first moment, the very first scene they were together. I was like, oh, they've just sort of naturally fallen into a couple ship. I I got the impression maybe I'm taking reading way too much into this movie as I want to do. But I got the impression that this was kind of like a summer romance. You know, while they were on vacation, they were going to be you know, good friends and maybe lovers, but then they'd go their separate ways and never have any, you know, lasting partnership. Cause how could they, they're nothing alike. Right. But they could at least enjoy this time together. That's how I romanticized it in my head. That is the most poetic way it could be played. It, it can be described. Oh, what can I say? I'm i I'm a poet at heart. The um, Anthony Balk, who, directed the thing also wrote it he co-wrote it with someone named alan watson who never wrote anything else that suggests to me that this was some sort of like passion project for them i wish i knew the background behind this movie i wonder if there's a blu-ray there with like a making of documentary or something 
if you know if you know about this movie let us know because i'm curious i mean I, I definitely don't think imdb had any information relevant to as far as like the actual history of the film no which is weird because like i could totally this would let's say hammer had made this that would make a lot of sense to me that it was just part of their horror output at the time but they didn't and in fact the guy who wrote and directed it didn't do any other horror movies so it just seems like and it's not like this was his first movie you know a lot of people start with horror as sort of a a, to get a toe into the the filmmaking business he did this one late in his career i think this was his second to last film so it's just weird to me that somehow this was thought up written and made it seems to have beaten the odds. You say this guy hasn't done any other horror films, but he has a film here called Bizarre, aka Tales of the Bizarre, aka uh, Secrets of Sex. Oh, well, is it a horror film or a sex film or both? It might be both. The yeah. poster art is a little odd, it doesn't really match the description that's provided. Well, I am looking on IMDb, and the film's Italian title, which I won't butcher, translates to Forbidden Diary of a Girl's Boarding School. Was there ever a more inappropriate title? Hmm. But apparently the producer, Richard Gordon, said that this was the most fun he ever had making a movie. I imagine this movie would be fun to make. Like, it seems to me like the whole cast is having fun. This definitely does does feel like a small town affair sort of situation, although I don't exactly think a, an entire town was involved. It just seems like a very dedicated group of, um, you know, professionals came together for this small time horror film. And uh, it, although it's definitely not scary by today's standards, it, it does take you on sort of like a 70s roller coaster ride, which I can always appreciate. I will say, I mean, that's a very good way to put it, a 70s roller coaster ride. And I do really appreciate this film. I think it's really fun. But I I have always been terrified of the concept of lobotomies. And that plays a, a big role in this movie, right? Michael Goh is lobotomizing people to turn them into obedient zombies. And, you know, the scariest thing I ever read or saw as a kid was one flew over the cuckoo's nest because i was so terrified of that horrifying ending like spoilers where um where the protagonist is lobotomized and uh, so anyway i got a touch of that um discomfort that disturbance while watching this movie but it wasn't really because of the movie it was just because lobotomies do that to me Thanks for spoiling that for me. I appreciate it. Oh, well, I assumed that if you haven't watched or read it by now, like you've had your entire life. Yeah, no, there's a statute of limitations on this shit that's like way since expired. (laughs) All right, then I don't feel bad. All right, um, let's play the trailer and get into the story. Well, before we play the trailer, just to give you a heads up, um, it is a very visual and mostly quiet trailer, but we're going to play it anyway, because what what else would we do?
All right. So we open on Michael Go like menacingly clasping his leather gloved hands as this young couple runs through the woods. All right. Time out. Time out. Okay. Before yeah. we even get into the meat and potatoes of the plot of this film, can we talk about the aesthetics for a hot minute of like the credits? Okay. Like, I mean, we the credits come later, but... We yeah, but no, we talk about it now. Um, so it's like solid black background. And then the text is like always framed in like a red, like nondescript line across every single like panel. And it is so cool looking. It's like every credit sequence is like the back of a box. Like the back of a movie box. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was cool. well done. I haven't seen anything like that before. I'm not sure if I have or not. I mean, it didn't, I didn't think it was that distinctive, but I did like it. Like I specifically remember like in video stores in like the nineties or so, there was some studio that would always pump out their films in boxes that were solid black with red like uh, boundary lines across the sides and the fronts. You know what I'm talking about? And then yeah. the text in the middle would be white. And it re- like really was a throwback to that, even though this these credits came out probably like 20 years before those those films. Yeah. They're, it, it, they have a very like 70s aesthetic to them that I appreciate. Yeah. I don't know. Just something with like the way it's framed and like the tricolor of the 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 red and the yellow text and then sometimes white at certain points to emphasize something. I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. No, I appreciate it. Now that I've shared that I'm very easily impressed, um, please continue with horror hospital. Well, Michael go is overseeing one of the more bizarre murders I've seen in a seventies film. If not any film, Um, do you want to talk about the machete car? I can talk about the logistics of the machete car. Like, first, how, why? Why is there a machete car? Why is there a machete car? You know, people are typically different heights, right? How Not in this movie. A, how you can have a fixed blade on this car that perfectly decapitates everybody despite <laughs> people having different heights? How you yes. do it? So just so the audience, if you haven't seen this, you can visualize it. The car is like, what kind of car is this? I'm terrible with kinds of cars. I just call it Rolls Royce, whatever. No one All right. It. It's a nice looking car. And it doesn't look like the kind of car that machetes are going to come out the side of. But it has a basket attached to the side and it drives up next to someone extends a machete blade decapitates them and then their head falls into the basket always no matter how tall they are as leland is pointing out and yeah i wrote in my notes like in a feat i don't understand this car decapitates the couple who are running through the woods and throws their heads in unison into the trash can and they're like covered in blood and they both have clear head injuries from probably some kind of botched surgery running for their lives. They're not even the same height in the shot. <laughs> we see them and this blade kind of just comes out of like above the wheel. Well, realistically, this would just be cutting motherfuckers in half. See, that's what I thought. That's what I expected to see. But no. So on the one hand, I admire that the film came up with this audacious idea for no reason, like it's not needed by the story. Um, 
but then they half-heartedly Im- Im- implemented it. Like they didn't even try to make it believable. I don't know. I'm not sure uh, how I where I fall on the machete car, but it's definitely unique. It is an interesting concept. Uh, also, it feels like it would just be so much easier to just run someone over and then take their head. But that is just not extra enough for a horror hospital. Well, after this and after the credits, we meet our main character in a bar. Um, there's a band playing, which I found out through IMDb was actually the 60s psychedelic band Tangerine Peel, which I have heard of, actually. I've had their record before. <laughs> So how do you like this song? It's okay. The psychedelic 70s rock is not really for me. Yeah. I mean, I think this is this is every bad cliche about 60s psychedelic rock in in one song. It nonsensical lyrics, badly sung, really badly performed, let's face it. It's pretty bad. I said 70s, you said 60s, but I I think we were thinking the same thing. Yeah. Um, But our main character, Jason, he's pissed because apparently he wrote this song and this band stole it somehow. I didn't quite understand this, but it ended up uh, him getting in a fist fight with a guy dressed in drag on the stage who is the producer, by the way. And so I, I guess what's implied by this scene and by like all his friends encourage him to go take a holiday or something, I think it's perceived that he has like an alcohol problem. Is it was that your impression? I get the I just got the feeling they didn't want him around anymore. Even if he was the one that was wronged, he's like starting fist fights and shit. Breaking up the band, you know? Yeah, no, he's definitely a source of instability, and I can see how they would want him to like to get rid of him for a while. Uh, but no, I I thought it had it was kind of implied that he had a problem with alcohol, and that the holiday he was going on was kind of a rehab trip. But maybe that was maybe there's just maybe I was reading too much into it. We don't see him drink at all, do we? I don't know if we do in that opening scene or not, but no, we don't after that. He goes to see this travel agent because he saw an ad for Harry Holidays is the name of the company. Is this some British slang that I don't understand? How am I supposed to know that? I don't know. I thought maybe you'd done your research. Oh, yes. On Harry Holidays. No, I'm afraid not. Uh, To give you an idea, uh, this advertisement is just like... uh... 
picture of a dude with a lot of fucking hair stretching out to the ends of the frame. Harry Holidays. And when in the travel agent, when he meets Jason, the film makes up like makes a point of showing us a prolonged shot where the travel agent stares at Jason's crotch. Yes. You know, Harry Holiday sounds more like a pet spa. It does. But yeah, so this, I don't know if in the 70s, this would have been like, they wanted this character to be seen as perverted for some reason. I don't know. I don't know why he seems so interested in our main character, but he is. Well, this man is clearly in on what will eventually be revealed to to be like an evil scheme. And there is the stereotype of the... uh, the evil homosexual, right? So true. Right in. True. Although he did try, like he tried to get Jason to go several other places before they eventually settled on the, the country retreat or whatever they called it. Yeah. But to go together. <laughs> so like there's still ulterior motives there. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. He wanted him to go with him personally. Yeah, to the Bahamas or some shit. All right, I missed that. Although he does say, um, at the end, he says that if if Jason ever changes his mind about the Bahamas, to come back and we'll work out something together. I don't know what that means, but that's what he says. So he goes and gets on the the train into a railway car with this young woman. This is Judy. Can we play the what uh how their initial uh, interaction goes? Yes, we can definitely play this. <laughs> that tastes good. It's not bad, thank you very much. Well, you're lucky. I didn't have time for any lunch. Here, would you like one of these apples? I think I'll go and get some coffee. But th- there's no need to get so uptight about things. I'm not going to rape you. How fucking awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Of a start, could you possibly get with someone and have it just not immediately burn out? See, but that's why I like this character because he doesn't seem to realize he's being awkward. Which is probably the reason why he got beat up by the rest of the band in the first place for shit like this. Yeah. I'm not going to rape you. <laughs> like, did you even give part of her lunchbox? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're like little kids, right? Did you even oh. get the like did you get the impression that she was worried about him raping her? No, but uh you know, if I was in her position and he said that, my my defenses would be up. I mean, I did think about it like, okay, here's a single woman and like a young guy is getting into your train car just the two of you alone like that i could see that being uncomfortable but she doesn't seem that uncomfortable and when she says she's going to get coffee it just seems like she's going to get coffee but when he after he tells her this she calms down and says oh okay and she sits down and yeah they share lunch it's a very strange scene, but they figure out they're going to the same place. Her aunt runs some sort of experimental health spa, the same place he's going to take a holiday. And when they get off on the stop that they're supposed to have a driver meet them, but the I don't know why they think a driver's going to meet them because her aunt never responded to her letters. Yeah, this is just like a representation of, you know, entitlement in the youth culture. 
from the seventies. Where's my car? Where's my ride? It is it sad that so they get caught in a rainstorm, right? And my major concern at this point was for the marvelous suede jacket he's wearing and shoes. <laughs> I will I want this I want all of this outfit so badly, and the fact that it possibly got ruined by rain is just horrifying. Well, I'm sure at the time this movie was filmed, there were hundreds of that jacket in, in just the local area alone. I don't know. It looks pretty unique. But anyway, they ask the guy who works there for help, who works at the train station. And he calls up the manor, which is this health spa, and says that he has two. And so they're going to send someone to pick him up. How would you describe the the figures that show up? Paramilitary? They're like hired mercenaries. Yeah, they're they're like there's two people, they're on motorcycles. It both motorcycles, they're dressed all in black and across the front they have in big letters Storm. And we know that the guy, you know, Michael Goes character is Dr. Storm. So I just called these Storm 1 and Storm 2. Because we're going to see them throughout the movie. But they well, drive. Also, it also clearly says Storm 1 and Storm 2 on the motorcycles. Oh, did it? I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Storm 1 and Storm 2. But I didn't. It's not the same two people the whole movie, right? It's kind of implied that there's more than two guards. So maybe this is just the names of the motorcycles. I got the impression that it was kind of like stormtroopers. Like there were a bunch of them, but they were all interchangeable. It is kind of surprising that there aren't more guards, specifically because of the uh, the underlying scheme of this film, right? I mean, it's ruined by the back of the box, but in the film itself, you don't know what's going on until well after halfway through the view time. Yeah. Do you think the movie does a good job of like keeping you in the dark about what's going on? Actually, yeah, I didn't really know what was going to happen. Yeah. Obviously, they're collecting heads, but for what purpose? It's part of what I like about this film and about these kinds of 70s films in general is they always have a pretty good mystery. Now, usually the solution to the mystery is absolutely preposterous. It could never happen, but it doesn't matter because you're along for the ride and the ride is fun. So do you think this movie was filmed in like a library or something? Because this is a very fancy building. At least the I really, lobby. I really didn't think about it. I thought maybe it, some parts of it were like a hotel or maybe an actual manor. Like maybe it's like a like a mansion. But I don't know. There's all sorts of extremely expensive statue that's like all over the place. Yeah, so do you think that the rooms were already decorated like this, or do you think they, they did this for this for the movie? The art or, or is all definitely some kind of fixture. I think wherever they filmed, they just happened to have that there already. But things like the front desk that were set up seems like a prop. So they're they're led in by um by a little person who's like the butler or something. How would you describe his position? Mm, he's an odd job yeah but he's not really he's not really there voluntarily right is anybody really here voluntarily feels like everyone's under some sort of coercion yeah it's left ambivalent like why exactly he's here but he 
he says several times that he would like to leave. But apparently there's only one room, so Jason and Judy will have to stay together, which I think Jason is totally happy with. And as they're going to their room, they pass this room with a bed that's absolutely soaked in blood. And is it the aunt that says we all have our little accidents, you know? I think it might have been Odd Job. What is his name? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. Frederick. His name is Frederick. The actor's name is Skip Martin. Yeah, so uh, Frederick is walking him down the hallway. And in front of him, through an open room, one of the uh, what's later discovered to be um, a lobotomized patient just nondescriptly walks out and down the hallway without saying anything. And uh, that is when the two protagonists look in to see the bed and it is absolutely soaked um, from pillow to middle to edge. Just a whole person's worth of blood in there. We all have our accidents. <laughs> Lines like that make this movie for me. Like the script is actually really well written. It don't. I mean, the whole thing is bonkers and preposterous, but the actual dialogue I thought was really well done. In fact, so around this time, we see the doctor call the travel agent. Hello? You know who this is. Well, Pollock, I've only had one this week. That magazine that you advertise in can't have a very large circulation. And your husband's health thing can't have much appeal, my dear. Remember, this time I want to get paid. Anyway, my spies have told me you already got two, not one. You're wrong as usual, Pollock. The other one's a niece of mine. I didn't know you had any relatives that wanted to visit you anymore. Neither did I. And it's a bloody nuisance. Certainly complicates things. <laughs> Never mind, dear. Take care. And remember, blood is thicker than water. <laughs> oh, go to hell. All right, this Ant character is played, Ant Harris. She's played by Ellen Pollock. She was in 96 other films. I think she's, after Michael Go, the best part of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I think she, I think her performance is really good. Maybe I took it for granted, but she just really seemed like this, the old matron stereotype. Maybe that's it. Maybe this just hits my evil mother stereotype closely enough to be appreciated. It's more of a evil grandmother. Yeah. Is that she like a is that like an appropriate subsect of your. Your interests? I guess. See, she she she's a good enough actress that we know she has some misgivings about all this, even though she seems to be going along with the doctor throughout the movie and like doing this evil shit. I got the sense that she wasn't fully on board with it. In some ways, her character and her as an actress reminds me of the the lady who led the orphanage in blood and lace hmm. yeah i could see that yeah that's kind of it, it's kind of the character she portrays like yeah i guess she's like an evil matron but can we talk about the scene at um the dinner scene 
what are they drinking? What is that like ecto cooler, high <laughs> ecto cooler in these glasses? <laughs> I have no idea, but this is my favorite dinner scene since the last hospital movie we watched, Asylum of Satan. It is about this the same quality, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's very similar. They it, Jason and Judy show up and there's these rows of people in white shirts except one girl in a black shirt. And they all have super pale faces and blank stares, and they won't ask any of the questions that our protagonists are asking. And then the aunt shows up, and she sits at the head of the table and says that none of them will speak until they are, uh, in, until they are fully cured. Very clearly, like if you haven't seen this film, like seven out of eight of these people have, are clearly missing a part of their brain. There is one woman at this table that doesn't have anything going on with her. She's just sitting there. Is is that the one who like breaks into hysterics? I think it is. Let me see. Yeah, but this will also stark like the stark contrast of their clothing is that the nurse, we're just going to call her nurse to for to fit the theme, is wearing a bright red top with a red turban. <laughs> Like a hair wrap. <laughs> well, everyone else is just wearing white, and then Jason's wearing like a, a blue jacket. I liked all the costuming in this movie. But yeah, this one girl like breaks into hysterics, screaming and flailing around. This is right after the nurse said that nobody and none of them would speak until they were fully cured. And uh, storms one and two, storm one and two, come and get her and carry her away. I'm convinced there's more than two guards because later in the film we watch one get killed and then two still show up. Yeah, there are definitely more than two. And yes, you're right. It's the normal looking one that freaks out. Yeah, yeah, they get in there fast. They get in there fast and immediately rip her out of the room. Oh yeah, they're very efficient. They're highly efficient guards, which is the benefit of having, like, central control. Do you think they're actually um, former patients? Yeah, and I think they're sort of like a hive mind where Michael Goh controls all of them. Was that your impression? Mm, not exactly, but maybe there is some kind of, like, telepathic link. I think there is. Can can we talk about the the little person for a moment, Frederick? Like <laughs> a little person, call him by his name. He's a human being. All right. Well, let's talk about Frederick. He has all of these sort of humorous quips, right? Like after they go to their bedroom, he tells them not to forget to brush their teeth while he's carrying this bloody bag down the stairs. Is he supposed to be like our comic relief? I suppose so. I mean, he's holding a giant burlap sack about half his size, pr presumably full of heads. You know, he just has a sack full of heads. And yet he manages to hide it completely behind him as uh, Jason and Judy are going up the stairs past them. I will say, so the impetus for this whole scene, and, and I thought this was really clever, is there's a point where Jason and Judy's faucet starts to pour blood instead of water. And this happens in movies all the time, right? It's usually like a haunted house thing, like in Poltergeist. But in this case, they actually give us an explanation. 
it's because Frederick threw the heads or other body parts in this bathtub upstairs. And so the blood is coming down. I don't know if the piping would actually work that way, but I appreciated the attempt. You know, the implication there is then if you're washing your hands or brushing your teeth in the sink, you're using potentially used bath water. Yep. Uh, old construction. So, yeah, I don't know if this was ever a realistic construction, uh, but yeah, I, I still appreciated that they tried. There's a weird scene where after the faucet starts pouring blood, Michael Go and the nurse sort of emerge from the shadows in their room. And I thought Frederick. Th- they're all it- just there with the open door. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was really well done. It's preposterous, but it is well done. Yeah, the whole movie is preposterous. In fact, that whole phrase, the whole movie is preposterous, but well done. (laughs) And that's the episode. Thanks. Yeah, that should be on the front of the box, right? There's a quote that says, the ultimate in blood and screams. I I think it should say uh, instead preposterous, but fun or effective. What did you think of how fast um, Jason and Judy's relationship escalated? Considering I don't think it would have started in the first place, this is warp speed. Maybe Judy's just clinging to Jason as like a life raft in this like sea of, um, I don't know, preposterous medical terror. Like she doesn't feel like she has a choice. I just thought like, all right, this is the era of free love. Neither of them is looking for a serious relationship. But they're in this situation together. They think one another is attractive and they decide to sleep together. Like that felt very natural to me. Like even though it was, I guess, a little silly and convenient for the sake of the movie, uh, their acting, their performances made it feel natural. And the scenario doesn't seem that far fetched. If I was single and in this situation, I would have totally slept with her, too. Yeah, but would you have also told her on the train that you weren't going to rape her after basically bullying her for an apple? No, no, but maybe she would have preferred I did. (laughs) All right, we should mention that there's also like this monster that's lurking around. We just catch glimpses of him. What do you think of the monster? Is there a monster that's lurking around? Yeah, he has like a weird deformed face where where is this monster between between this this makeout section the session and their their midnight romping through the asylum so as so during the night we see we see the um frederick bearing bodies uh-huh and we see judy gets up because jason is gone and she goes looking for him and she comes across a room where all of the other patients are asleep Storm 1 and 2 find her, and then Jason sees this monster with a really scary face, and someone else knocks him out. Holy shit, I do not remember this. Hang on. Yeah, go look at it. Oh, whoa. How did I miss this? It is this the only time we see this guy before the end? Um, I think we see him like a couple times. Oh my god. I may have missed those somehow. Oh, uh, well, that's okay. He really doesn't matter to the plot. He kind of does. I guess. Uh, not at this stage, though. Yeah, this like uh, 
oatmeal paper mache man wandering around at night. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I did not. I, I, oh my god, it's gonna be so hard to talk about this because I didn't remember that was a thing. No, the next day the travel agent shows up, like demanding more money. Uh, but he gets killed by the machete car too. Did you think it was interesting that uh, the doctor was served blood oranges in the morning? <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Yeah. See, I noticed that, but I didn't notice the fucking monster like 30 seconds before that. Hey, we all have our shortcomings. But, <laughs> um, Jason sees this one. He sees the travel agent being killed by the machete car. It's very like fl flagrant like how how do you do this right at the doorstep you know you could just wait for this man to walk down the road and then machete car him no they do it right here where everyone can see from the windows of the hospital no this movie has the bond villain problem right where michael go he he's not only an evil genius he wants to make sure everybody knows he's an evil genius and sees his genius on display what's the point of inventing a machete car if you don't show it off <laughs> i think that's seriously his mentality because there are several scenes where he maniacally explains the plot to our main characters in fact one is about to come up um and he could have just dispatched with them at that point, but he doesn't because he's not a rational, real person. But he wheels in and he offers Jason an explanation and they go on a tour. We see all these people like hopping up and down on their hands and doing other crazy feats of strength. We see a guy doing backflips on command through a window. And Michael Go says they're all his puppets. And he has Judy locked up behind some iron bars, sleeping. Judy is going to have an operation, presumably a lobotomy. And he says Jason will be next. So was this the big reveal for you? Like, did you, what did you think of this as your, your plot dumping? It's like, okay. I mean, I, I see what he's doing here. Yeah. The only real why we get is because he's evil and he wants to do it there's not some like greater scheme in mind does there have to be like he's evil and he wants to mind control people yeah but like you'd think you'd have some greater goal after learning how to mind control people like he never talks about you know starting his own private army or like starting his own nation state or anything like that it's just this is this is it he's gonna do the leg work he's gonna release a journal to like uh it's like you know scientific america or whatever and that's it that that's going to be his claim to fame it just seems like there should be like an extra step here you know there's the meme where it's like you know uh catch catch young impressionable teenagers put them into your horror hospital lobotomize them and turn them into slaves question marks profit like that's that's what we're at here i i find it kind of refreshing i like that it's very Scooby-Doo, right? We're given a very theatrical villain with a very simple objective, mind control people to do evil. And I'm like, yeah, I can get behind that. You know, if they had tried to explain it more, if they had tried to give him a whole backstory and like justification for his actions, then you run into the problem of I'm going to poke holes in it. 
right? Because it's not going to be believable. And so why come up with a justification for your behavior if it's not going to be believable anyway? Just be ridiculous. That's why I appreciate this movie. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm struggling to think of a Scooby-Doo episode where, you know, teenagers were lobotomized and murdered. No, but the the villains are the villains always have very simple uh rationale for their, you know, villainy. Jinkies, it was old man Storm in the abandoned asylum turning teenagers into mindless slaves. Exactly. Hmm. I think even Scooby Doo would try to provide a reason as to to why this why this was happening in the first place. Like it would be some sort of like extortion plot or someone trying to like uh, reduce reduce property value so we could snatch up the entire forest, the surrounding forest area, <laughs> and then sell it at a massively exploited profit. Develop like a mini mall. I don't know. There'd be something there. I do to to get back to like what's going on in the movie um i the the musical score during all of this is actually really good i i think it's really exciting um even though it it kind of seems fit for a more epic movie like there's a scene where jason bur- jumps through a window and runs through a field of wheat as storm one and two chase him and yeah can we just play a moment of the music so this is is like star trek fight music it's very like old school hollywood but i i liked it yeah anyway fuck storm one and two they go the wrong way chasing jason in the woods but storm three he's where it's at he he is hot on the trail he finds Jason. They get into a struggle. And then Jason fucking double foot kicks him into an acid bog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I called this the acid sludge. <laughs> what is this doing out here? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of, you know, uh, nuclear waste that this plant produces <laughs> that, you know, they use to power this building. I don't no, know. See, this is something that like all that all locals in the UK know about. They're like, yeah, it's the acid bog. You don't go near that. But then like out, people on the outside are like, what? This is this is normal. This is normal to you. You don't you don't talk about this to other people. <laughs> if if you're from the UK and you know about acid bogs, please <laughs> let us know because um, we'd both like to know more. Like this isn't quicksand, right? Like quicksand is apparently everywhere according to hollywood this is like a seething pool of liquid carefully hidden under fallen leaves and this man falls into it halfway and is so immobilized that he can't even try to crawl out it it devours you pretty quickly and i'll also say that um jason does a pretty fantastic job of fighting and running for someone who like as far as we've seen has not slept or ate or drank anything during all of this time 
I just kept thinking, like, this is a guy that drinks and stays up all night in bars. There's no way he is used to this kind of physical activity. I appreciate how absolutely fucked up his uh, clothes are by the time Storm 1 and 2 catch up. Like I did. His pants are ripped on the crotch. <laughs> his shirt is torn up. Yeah. As I said earlier, that's what hurts the most. They ruin those clothes. Anyway. He ends up locked in a cell, and I, I thought it was pretty cool. He uses a bench as a battering ram to try to knock the da- the door down, but yeah, he gives up after like two tries. I mean, give the man a break. He just ran like a marathon through a forest and killed a man in hand-to-hand combat. I was just saying it was really impressive, but they're able to pour gas into this room to knock him out, and we get a dream sequence that's just a bunch of prior scenes, and you know, in our last episode, I said that I hated this, but in this movie, I kind of liked it. <laughs> What's the difference between the two movies? You like this one. <laughs> uh, so, one, in this case, there's it's actually a bunch of crazy shit that all just happened, and I totally can imagine it replaying in his head if he got knocked out by a drug. Like, that just makes sense to me. And we don't see any future scenes in this one, right? We only see scenes from the past. So, I don't know. It kind of fit thematically for me, but I also just like the way it was done. It definitely doesn't feel like they're padding for runtime, right? Because it's so short. It's like, what, six, seven seconds? It's not that bad. No. Let's play the this the first scene where we see the doctor and the nurse operating together because our nurse is beginning to have some misgivings. Christian, I've been thinking. Have you, my dear? I've been thinking for many years and I've achieved quite a lot in that time, don't you think? Yes, rather too much, I'm afraid. You no longer confide in me. After that appalling business with Pollack, and now this young man, Jason... Someone's going to get suspicious. Don't be ridiculous. Anybody who's ever had any dealings with that scoundrel Pollock would be only too glad to see the back of him. As for these young people, they come and go like flies these days. Dirty ones at that. Their disappearance will hardly be noticed. Besides, You don't think I've engineered all this equipment for all these years for nothing, do you? Pass me a scalpel. Well, this is the last one I'll help you with. Very well, Olga. And what will you do? I can always go back to Hamburg. You're too old to run a whorehouse. Thank you. People twice my age have managed to make ends meet. So I doubt that last part. What would twice her age be? Oh. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, I feel like that was in the script, but it didn't work with the actress. No, no. I think they maybe had someone much younger in mind when they wrote that. Yeah. But otherwise, I love this scene. 
I thought I think see this is where Michael Go is so incredible. When he says lines like you're too old to run a whorehouse, it's the just this whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear and when you see him, you can see his facial expressions. You can hear the humor in his voice, right? It, it, Vincent Price does this really well too. Like where you can tell that even when he's disgusted with something or furious, he's also has amusement. And I, I really appreciate that. And the entire time he's like, you know, performing surgery and pulling lunch meat out from behind this, uh, like white medical cloth. <laughs> yeah, it looks really silly. But it works. The scene works. Yeah. So I really don't want to get into this, but we need to mention that there's a guy who shows up looking for his girlfriend, but she's already been lobotomized. Well, and she's the one that's on the table right now, I think. Right. So he becomes sort of a side character, but... There was a whole lot of, of emphasis on him trying to figure out what happened to his girlfriend. But, of course, we already know what happened to his girlfriend because we saw it happen. So, I don't know. Any thoughts about this guy? When he first showed up, I was really hoping he was actually Judy's boyfriend because that would have made shit really interesting. That's what I thought it was going to be at first. But, no. But, yeah, this guy could have been left out. Sorry, guy. Yeah, he's basically just there so they have, like, another character to introduce, I guess. So I could have done without him. Yeah, it seemed like this movie already had enough going on where they didn't need to toss someone else in. Yeah, that's true. And, I mean, I kind of feel the same way about the, the monster because it, it's around this time where the nurse decides she's leaving with Judy and she tells Michael Go that she's going to leave. But Storm 1 and 2 catch her, and Michael Go tells them to lock her up. And we see the the monster strangling her. Right, so does she die at this point? Is this the end of the nurse? So look, Dr. Storm's operation here is kind of like the mafia. You can't really just leave, right? I'm not sure what the nurse was thinking because you can't honestly believe that this man's just going to let you walk away. Even if you have like a storied history, you've seen what this man is capable of. And so, yeah, he, uh, he has a monster in quotes, uh, come to his room and strangle her. And that's it. She is gone. I was really disappointed when she died because like I said earlier, she pretty much was my favorite character. Like I thought she kind of made the movie. She's, in her final scene, she's wearing this really cool, like, sequined reptile gown. Yeah, it's really awesome. I don't know if it's actually made of reptiles or if it's just like a mock sequin, but either way, it looks really cool. And it's, it is a kind of a shame that she goes out like this. Yeah. So she's dead, and Jason and his new friend are locked up, and Judy is awaiting her fate as a lobotomized slave. And we see Frederick preparing a meal for them. He's spooning this purple pudding shit into bowls. It, it's really bizarre. He pours a glass of green juice and puts two straws in it. Yeah, man, it, the ecto cooler. 
This is the kind of thing that makes this movie great, though. These little details. Like, we don't need this scene at all. We just get this scene of him putting wacky purple food into bowls for them. And I don't know. I, I, it's totally worth it to me. He does add something with an eyedropper to each drink. Some sort of drug, I guess. It's, a, it's straight from the bottle. Right. And his goal, because at this point, the movie doesn't show us, but he has been solicited to help our protagonist. And so he's using these drinks to knock out the guards. But he's only helping because he wants out. Right. I think what might have happened is he realized the nurse wanted out and got murdered. And so now he probably believes his only way out is through his own volition. He has to actually escape himself by helping these others get out but he's kind of the whipping boy the whole time like he accepts michael goes at least verbal abuse the entire movie it's not like he can make things worse for himself unless he's going to be killed i guess is my point but I, i so i really like it when um when jason is eating his purple sludge he says how many times has this been eaten <laughs> <laughs> but frederick is is in there giving them the food at this point and talking with them and then he knocks to be let out by the guards what would have happened if the guards had a passed out before he let he got back out well he kind of knew how long this stuff was gonna you know take effect or how long it was gonna wait to kick in because i don't he does like the cool anime shit where he walks out of the cell and he's like five Four, and he counts down to the exact moment where they just plop over poisoned. Well, it, all I'm saying effect. is you're taking a pretty big risk if the the downside is if they pass out a moment too soon, you're locked in the jail cell with the prisoners and everyone will know exactly who drugged the guards. Just seems like you're taking too big of a risk. I would have been out of there right away. No, nah, man, this is a mastermind. He knew exactly what he was doing. All right. Yeah, and I will say, it's in, as silly as I found it, it was entirely worth it for the scene that follows where he can't open the door, so he has to pile the guards up to stand on like a ladder. This could not have been in the original script. I bet they, they ad-libbed this shit once they found uh, you know, the casting for Frederick. Yeah, it... like. Using a little person in a role like this is so cliche, right? It, 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 all of all of these, all of the Frankenstein movies, a lot of the other famous monster movies, you always have like the dwarf or the midget assistant, right? And the cliche could be offensive, but this movie makes it work because they actually use his size to the advantage of the movie, right? This is a whole comedy routine. It's a physical comedy, like Three Stooges routine inserted into the middle of this movie, and it totally works. It doesn't just feel like comedy relief, though. Like, I feel like he's humanized. He just doesn't feel like a prop. Right. That's part of what I'm getting at is he's... They're actually treating him like a real person, you know, limitations and strengths and everything, not just like the visual Igor stereotype. But I thought this scene was really fun. It's very like Peter Jackson, Three Stooges. Um, 
he, the bodies keep rolling and falling down and he it, it's great physical comedy but they go to rescue judy and they race out and the guards are there and michael go rolls up like very conveniently um and so he says you can tell me over dinner how you escaped from your cell he's very calm and amused we should mention that they don't get caught until they go back for uh third second guy's girlfriend who's already a lost cause. They could have just left. Right. Yep. In the late twenties, before Stalin came to power, I was a disciple of Academician Pavlov. <laughs> then when Stalin did come to power, he installed many young scientists. Stupid adolescents who didn't know what they were doing. Very soon, my laboratories were overrun by these young Turks. So he goes on to tell the story of the whole movie. What did you think of the part where he, like, explained how the zombies were unable to have sex and it, like, showed them trying to have sex? I mean, I guess it's better than just focusing on this guy's face for, like, the next five minutes. Because this, this dialogue goes on for a while. Yeah, he... um he does a lot of plot dumping and, but Jason is fascinated with his story, which I found really interesting. Like it was a cool character trait because this is a guy who has acted selfishly the whole movie. And for all we can tell, he does, he's not really into anyone except himself, but here he's really engrossed in what someone else has to say. I just thought it was cool. It is worth mentioning that the uh, scene of the two lobotomized patients uh, trying to experience intimacy are doing so on uh, what looks like a bare hard floor surrounded by a wooden frame filled with sand, but not even like enough sand to provide cushioning. It's just kind of there to push around with your body. And this is all done under a uh, what magenta fluorescent bulb (laughs) it's i'm telling you man it's a really weird scene it's really weird that it's here but i appreciate it and this this is not even like 20 seconds no i agree i appreciate all of this about the movie i'm just trying to communicate to our listeners that when you hear the premise for this movie it sounds like dozens of other 70s movies like uh couple gets lost and trapped in a weird house with a bunch of strange people and barely escapes with their lives like a million movies have that story but this movie is weird it's bonkers and it it really works because of it i think it does something different with the cliches and i really appreciate that this man clearly has a problem with his patients trying to escape like constantly. Do you right. think maybe he would have less escapes if maybe he just, I don't know, didn't tell people his master plan before actually just executing it? I mean, that is his fetish, I suppose. That's what I was getting at earlier. It's the Bond villain thing, but I actually don't mind it. Uh, you know, you've got to take this movie for what it is. Oh, for sure. No, I'm not talking about like the aesthetics of it, just the logistics. Like, can yeah. you imagine being like the nurse working for this man and you're like, please, can you not deliver your fucking Bond soliloquy? 
like before we fucking put them on the operating table like, can we just do this shit can we get it over with like maybe your research would have been done years ago if you didn't waste so much time with this theatrics it's a very it's very ill-advised but on the other hand what's the point of doing all this evil mastermind stuff if you can't show anybody he just wants some recognition for being an evil genius that's all but I'm um, saying, he's not doing this for world domination he's doing it to get into the scientific journals yeah but i i do want to i do want to say that ordinarily this would drive me a little crazy but you've got to this movie is a product of its time and place and context and this 70s gothic horror it has these speeches it has these monologues it has these characters that do totally irrational things for the sake of the drama and so you've got it it's just like i say shot on video is its own thing where you've got to take it for what it is and accept the rules and the limitations of the medium that's how i feel about this kind of movie so even though it's kind of an illogical aspect or an imperfection, I still think it works. All right. Do you want to go to where they discover Michael Goh's secret? I mean, just a very quick setup after dinner. The doctor tosses them all into a single hotel room and locks them up until their eventual surgery. Um, they end up using Frederick's size to their advantage by equipping him with a battle axe and slipping him out through the back bathroom window where he then goes on a storm guard murder spree. Well, at least he kills one at, at the, at the very least in a really cool scene where he hatchets a motorcycle helmet. And then after the pulls the helmet out, blood just goes. <laughs> I, I did wonder group. about how he so easily hatched an axe to that guard in the head, even though he's like half the guard's height. I did find that. I did find that a little silly. He raised his hands all the way above his head. And he was able to reach with that battle axe, or maybe he jumped. Well, it's, you know, we're calling it a battle axe. It's more of like a hatchet, but like a one-handed. It's like a one-handed hatchet. Okay, all well, one-handed. Oh my god, where am I just, going? Just, just accept that the dwarf did it. Yeah, yeah. But what's kind of sad is Frederick's death. You know, he kills one storm and then another storm takes him and basically hog tosses him down the stairs where he hits his head on uh, some of the very beautifully crafted marble uh, railing and, and dies after dropping a couple lines of dialogue. So we eventually see the the monster in the bed with Millie. Millie is the girl who's already been lobotomized. And the monster's like beating her with a stick and stabbing her. What what was this? What was it trying to do? I mean, he's just kind of a he's just a sadist in general. I'm a, I was going to say kind of. He is a sadist in general. Well, this is our twist because the camera pulls back and we see that there's a Michael Go mask on the chair, and so we realize that the monster is Michael Go. The mask admittedly looks really silly in this scene. Yeah, but what were you going to do? Yeah. For the time. I, I just wish they had used somebody of Michael Goh's same stature to be the monster if they were going to go this route. Because the monster looks way too big to be him. Yeah, it is definitely someone much bigger. Like they got some cake as they're running away from the woods. 
Yeah. So anyway, the mask looks and it's weird because later on we see a Michael Go mask that looks really good. But and just just to throw this out there, he is a monster because in the laboratory fire that he describes over dinner, he leaves out that he was actually um, massively disfigured during it and uh, is is thus now some sort of like mutated melty monster. Well, our heroes are fighting to escape. And it's pretty epic at the end, man. They got like fires going on. There's there's at least like six storms. <laughs> it is. It's like an Indiana Jones movie where they're trying to race through the building and escape in the nick of time. And then there's this moment where and it IMDB tells us it was improvised, where Jason stops for a moment to eat a piece of pie. I laughed out loud at this. It really got me. But they hijack the machete car and chase down Dr. Stone. He ends up in the acid swamp. What did you think of this as a as an end for the villain? It is poetic justice, and they do get one good u- one more good use out of the car for the film ends. It's it's like they get all of their good stuff done out of the way, right? They get to show the car again. They get to show the acid swamp again. So I don't know. It worked, but at the at the very end, we see a hand coming up out of the swamp. So I guess uh, there's going to be a follow up. Yeah, you need that set up for Horror Hospital too. Exactly. Isn't it sad we never got one? Where do you go from here? <laughs> I don't know. I could write one. I would happily write Horror Hospital 2. I don't think anyone would pay to make it though. I'll tell you what, if you're if you're a filmmaker and or a producer or you just have a lot of money and you listen to our podcast and you would be willing to help me finance and produce Horror Hospital 2 with an original script by me, you know how to contact me. All right, with that, you want to give final thoughts? Yo, I love how random guy that shows up takes the bloody head of Dr. Storm out of the basket and just heaves it into the acid bog. (laughs) Dude, at the train station, it's just not surprised that all these people are coming back. Nope, although these are probably the first people who have ever come back, right? Yeah. Despite some of the uh, flaws I think the the main protagonist has, uh, I think this is actually a pretty entertaining film altogether. Uh, I I really do like the dialogue, the pacing. Um, The reveals are at a very... The reveals are at a very good pace. Like, it doesn't feel like this movie uh, takes its time or takes too long. You're looking at like an hour and a half view time, which for um, an Hammer-esque horror film is probably like the perfect length. Um, unlike Luke, I don't really have a problem with the uh, monster reveal at the end, but uh, I also didn't have any expectations for this film going in. I was just like, hey, how many nurses are in this film? And we got one, and uh, then there's a monster. That's enough, I think. The best way to approach this film is sort of as like a faux Hammer film. Uh, I have seen probably not too many Hammer films, but I've seen enough to know the theme, to know what to expect. And this is probably the most Hammer-esque non-Hammer film I've ever seen. I can't think of a more eloquent way to put that. And it's this whole film was just pretty charming in general outside of you know Jason's initial 
um, first impression. Now I'm going to give this one like two and a half stars just because I, I do like most of the characters. I love the dialogue. The special effects are great. And the little details are really what make this film like the strange food, the um, off scenes of people describe uh, uh, that are all throughout the hospital that like, you know, the bed covered in blood, the uh, gymnasium antics of the, of the uh, asylum prisoners. I, it just all adds up to a really cool film. Cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I mostly agree. I, I really like this film. If it's not already apparent, I think it's really entertaining and fun for what it is. The I like all the characters and I all the actors do a good job, especially Michael Goh and Ellen Pollock, who play the the doctor and the nurse. The first time I saw this movie, I was consistently surprised, like much more so than a lot of times in a Hammer film. I'm watching it for the dialogue and the performances and the set, but I'm usually not watching it for the story. Usually the story is fairly predictable and sort of routine. This one is not routine. There are lots of surprises in this movie and they're really silly, um, but they're done with a totally straight face and so they work for me um i just think this movie's fun and i really like uh the doctor and the nurse characters they make great evil villains that are given wonderful monologues and even if it's unrealistic and even if we have these weird you know monologues that aren't even if the characters don't act like real people right it's within the medium of this kind of film it really works and it's brilliant i do think it become the movie drags just a little bit in all of the various running around at the end but i have a action scenes aren't my favorite thing so um i'm gonna give it three and a half I'm starting to think the only reason they added the second guy was so they could get away with those action scenes. I think that was the main reason. Yeah. And maybe to give you some, some reason to sympathize with Millie because otherwise she's just a random girl. All right. So next week, we're going to continue with our nurse theme uh, as well as revisit the films of Nick Millard famous for criminally insane and criminally insane part two <laughs> what a resume uh, yeah we're gonna watch a 1987's death nurse starring criminally insane crazy fat ethel herself priscilla alden i'm actually pretty excited to watch and talk about death nurse leland it has been a while but you can find this on YouTube, I'm pretty sure, if you want to follow along. Yeah, and I'll also... I mean, Death Nurse is an hour. I'm going to watch Death Nurse 2 as well. Does Does that mean I'm also watching Death Nurse 2 or what? That's your call. <laughs> is Wait, wait, wait. Is Death Nurse 2 just another crazy clips episode of all of one and all the other one? I've never... I, I haven't seen it. I don't know. It'll be a first time watch for me. I tell you what, you watch Death Nurse 2 first, and if you feel like it's worth talking about, 
I will watch it. But if okay. it's exactly like Criminally Insane 2, where I forget it was a fucking movie and it doesn't go on to my worst films of 2022 list, then we need to really cons- reconsider doing it. Okay. Sounds good. Right. So everybody check out Death Nurse and if you can stomach it, Death Nurse 2 and join us next week. Um, in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares where I post everything that we do. Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. All right. Everyone have a good week and uh, we'll talk to you next week about Death Nurse.